Hello, you guys. I am so excited. It is the first episode of Hollow Week. How are we doing? Are we ready? If you have no idea what I am talking about, let me just fill you in real quick. So Hollow Week is something that I did on my channel, on my YouTube channel last year. And it is that the week before Halloween, every single day, I would upload a new true crime video. And they were really crazy cases really creepy cases and i wanted to bring that into killer instinct this year and so every day leading up from now until halloween we are going to have a new podcast episode we are going to have a new episode every single day until halloween and i am so excited i love this time of year it is my favorite and i cannot wait to share some of these cases with you because they are going to blow your mind so for the first episode of Halloween, I was dabbling through lots of different cases and I made so many different lists of the ones that I wanted to share with you guys and talk about with you guys. And I never knew what order I wanted to do them in and was dabbling with that. And I always came back to this case. This one has always been one that has drawn me in as far as my disbelief for the fact that this was even real. Um, so for today, we are talking about John list. And if you are unfamiliar with who this man is, get ready because it is about to get crazy. So John List was a man who actually murdered his entire family and got away with it for 18 years. Yeah. So let's just jump right on into it. So John List was born on September 17th, 1925 in Bay City, Michigan. And his father was also named John and his mother was named Alma. Now, both of his parents were German, and he was the only child that his parents had. And because of that, it kind of made them be very strict towards John. And they both were not the warmest people. They both had pretty cold personalities. So Alma, his mother in particular, was very overprotective. She was very intimidating and very domineering. And John, his father, was raised Lutheran. And so religion was a very big thing for the List family. They attended church as a family, and John attended Sunday school in his church growing up. And then in 1943, John enlisted in the U.S. Army and served as a laboratory technician during World War II. He served there for about three years and then John attended the University of Michigan in 1946 and that is where he earned his bachelor's degree in business administration as well as a master's degree in accounting. So John ended up meeting his first wife, Helen Morris Taylor, in 1951 in Virginia. And this was because this was during the time of the Korean War and John had been recalled to active service. And Helen was there as well because she happened to be the widow of an officer who had been killed during the war. So John and Helen met and they got married really quickly. It was actually within the same year that they got married in Maryland. And then they ended up moving to Northern California. And this is just the start of their moving process you will see as we keep going they move around a lot and Helen had a daughter at the time that she met John and Helen's daughter's name is Brenda and so Brenda lived with Helen and John so let's talk about John so John was described as an uptight self-righteous and cold person he didn't have a lot of friends and he wasn't very easy to 
to get along with. So that was kind of why he didn't really have a lot of friends. And he didn't have great social skills. And this really hurt his future when it came to his career, which is part of the reason him and his family were constantly moving all the time. So in 1952, he worked for an accounting firm in Detroit, Michigan. And then after that, he worked at a paper company in Michigan again. And that's where he had his three children. So his kids were Patricia, John Jr., and Frederick. And by 1960, Brenda had moved out of the house and gotten married. So it just left the three kids, John and Helen, in the house. And then the family moved to Rochester, New York, so John could take a job for being the director of accounting services. And then in 1965, he accepted a position as vice president at a bank in New Jersey. So they ended up moving again. So John, Helen, and his three kids ended up moving into a Victorian mansion in Jersey City, and this also included John's mother, Alma. So she moved in with the family as well, and she had her own little, like, apartment loft room on, the, like, the third floor, I think it was. So this family, the Lists, were always on the go. They were always moving. They lived in California, Detroit, Michigan, New York, New Jersey, and it was all because of John's job. So clearly what that should show you is that he couldn't keep one job for very long. So once they were able to settle down in New Jersey, John's family was living a pretty idyllic life, so they thought. It's how it looked on the outside. They were living in a nice house, they were going to good schools, they lived in a great community, but besides John, there was someone in this family who was very much suffering, and that was Helen, John's wife. So Helen struggled a lot with alcohol abuse, and she also suffered from the STD syphilis. And Helen got syphilis from her first husband, and she kept it a secret, like all during her dating with John, and then in the beginning of their marriage with John. So John never actually knew about this, and he didn't find out until later into their marriage, and it caused a really big strain on their marriage, especially because John, growing up in the background that he did in the Lutheran community and church, it was not something that he was really willing to accept he had a very big problem with it but John wasn't the most honest man himself to put it lightly he was also hiding his own secret from his family when they moved out to Jersey City so not too long after they moved to Jersey City John actually got fired from his job again And instead of telling his family, he actually pretended that he was going to work every single day. He would leave his home in the morning and come back at night to make it seem like he was working a full work day. But instead, he was actually spending his days at the train station. He would sleep or read or just wander around. He really did anything he had to do to avoid telling his family the actual truth. And because he lost his job, the family started to struggle a lot financially. But again, no one other than John was aware of this. So because of this, he went to the lengths of stealing money from his mom's bank account. He refused to get help from the bank. His ego and pride really got in the way of him on this one so what did he think was the best way to go about this he thought instead of telling his family the truth getting rid of them would be a better idea So this was very premeditated, and John had actually stopped all milk, mail, and newspaper deliveries. That way, no one would come to the house. And I know it's crazy thinking about milk deliveries. Like in our day and age, you just go to the grocery store. But back then, 
you could have milk delivered to your house. So on November 9th of 1971, John's kids all went to school that day. And while they were away at school, John had actually shot his wife, Helen, in the back of her head. And then he went upstairs to where his mom would stay in her little apartment loft. And he ended up shooting her above her left eye. And both of her knees ended up breaking as she fell to the ground. And then when his 16-year-old daughter came home from school, Patricia, he ended up shooting her in the back of the head as well and then did the same thing for his youngest son, 13-year-old Frederick. And after he murdered almost everyone in his family, he ended up closing all of the bank accounts and he then went and watched his oldest son's, John Jr.'s, soccer game which i just like can you imagine that like really put that into perspective for a second he kills his whole family goes to his kids soccer game knowing he's going to kill him when he goes home too like just just imagine that it's absolutely insane so he watched the game he cheered on his son and then he drove john jr home and then shot him as well but john jr was different because there was actually somewhat of a struggle when it came to john jr because he was actually shot at least 10 times 10 times so John then dragged his wife and children into the ballroom of the mansion that they lived in. He lined all of them up and then he put towels over their faces and then prayed for them afterwards. He ended up leaving his mom up in her room saying that she was too heavy to carry downstairs. And after lining up his family, he ended up writing a letter to his pastor confessing to all of this, saying his life was falling apart, his wife didn't want to go to church, he lost his job, he was having financial problems, basically just trying to justify in any way that he could that killing his family was the right thing to do. He said he needed to kill them to save their souls. He then called the kids school and told them that they were going to be out of town for a couple weeks on a family vacation to North Carolina to visit Helen's mom. And after that, John took all of the family pictures out of the frames. And he did this so it would make it more difficult for authorities to figure out what he looked like. And then he stayed the night in their house. He stayed the night in the house with all of his family members dead inside of it. And then he left the next morning just insane so he left his family in the house and he left all of the lights on so day and night every single light in the house was on but neighbors noticed that there wasn't anyone in the house they didn't see anyone walking past the windows or anything like that so about a month later it was a whole month later when the lights started to go out one by one neighbors decided to call the police so police arrived at the house on december 7th 1971 so the murder took place on november 9th like i said so now we're at december 7th and when they entered the house organ music was playing through the intercom and if that's just not the most disturbing creepy thing you've ever heard i don't know what is um they also found a the five page note that was meant for john's pastor that he never sent out that explains why in his mind he did what he did so he never ended up sending the note to his pastor it was just in the house still and the fbi was able to find it and they were able to find the family car at the john f kennedy international airport in new york city but they had no evidence to prove that john ever got on a plane so police really didn't know where john was they knew that they had a dead family and 
one member of the family was missing and that member ended up writing a confessional letter and left it in the house and that's who they're trying to look for but they didn't know where to start because john was nowhere to be found and this case really ended up going cold and not just cold for a couple months or a year or even two years but this case went cold for 18 years Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. So in 1989, a forensic artist named Frank Bender, who would create sculptures, you know how like now we use age progression pictures where they'll show a picture of someone when they first went missing and what they would generally vaguely look like now or in 10 years time or something like that so this is what frank did but he made sculptures instead so he created a sculpture of what he imagined john list would look like as he aged from 1971 to 1989 and even though john took out all of the pictures in the house authorities were still able to get pictures of him it wasn't like he completely removed his identity they were still able to find pictures of him through his old jobs and things like that so that's what frank was really working off of then on may 21st 1989 there was an america's most wanted episode that aired and that is when 22 million people saw frank bender's sculpture and that is when the tips started to pour in on john list So someone actually called in and they said that they recognized John as their neighbor, which could you even imagine like you're watching America's Most Wanted and your neighbor pops up on the screen? That would definitely be very creepy. And so this neighbor calls the police and calls the tip line and says, I recognize this man on America's Most Wanted and he looks like my neighbor. So on June 1st, 1989, John List was actually arrested. So the murder occurred in 1971. Now we are in 1989. So where did John go during these 18 years? So in 1971, after the murders, John actually traveled by train from New Jersey to Michigan and then from Michigan to Colorado, which makes me wonder, how did he drive his car to the New York airport and then go back and get on a train from New Jersey to Michigan? It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But anyways, he then traveled from Michigan to Colorado and he ended up settling down in Denver in 1972 and took an accounting job under the alias Robert Peter Clark otherwise known as Bob, which weirdly enough was actually the name of one of his college classmates. But the person who was really named that says that he never knew John at all. 
Then from 1979 to 1986, John was the controller at a paper box manufacturer right outside of Denver, Colorado, and he joined a Lutheran church and ran a carpool shuttle for the church members. He ended up meeting a woman named Dolores Miller at one of these religious gatherings that the church had and ended up marrying her in 1985. And she obviously had no idea of John's past. And then in 1988, John and Dolores moved to Virginia where he still used the name Bob Clark and he started working again as an accountant. What's so crazy is that when he was caught and when police took him in and arrested him for months, like literally months, John tried to convince people that he wasn't John List and that he was Bob Clark, but police told him that because he was in the army, they have his fingerprints and they would be able to connect him to being John List. And when he figured that out is when he started talking. So when he figured out that he was going to get caught for this, that is when he said, okay, you're right. Like I am John List. And his wife ended up divorcing him right after she found out about all of this, rightfully so. I can't imagine her staying with him. But then on April 12th of 1990, John List was convicted of five counts of first-degree murder. At his sentencing, he denied direct responsibilities for his actions, which is really mind-boggling if you think about it. He said that because of his mental state at the time, that he shouldn't be held accountable for what he did, and he asked for forgiveness. But no one was buying it, luckily, and the judge sentenced him to five life terms. John tried to appeal this by saying that he had PTSD and that the letter that he left for his pastor was supposed to be confidential and shouldn't be allowed to be used as evidence, but both of those arguments were rejected. And the defense, the defense also tried to say that the police had no search warrant, so they shouldn't have been able to go into the house at all, which again, I mean like search warrant or no search warrant, there's dead bodies in the house. So I think that they still have the right to go in there. Um, And in 2008, John ended up dying at the age of 82 of pneumonia. And I want to touch on something really quick about this whole case. And that was a question that I kind of thought of a lot during this. And that was, you know, if he killed his whole family, why not that I say that suicide is in any way, shape or form the right answer, but why not kill himself as well? Like if he's already going to go to the extent of killing his five family members to save their souls and put them out of suffering, why did he not kill himself as well? And I actually found the answer and that is because he said that if he committed suicide, he believed that he would not be going to heaven, which he believes that his family would be going to heaven and he wanted to be with them once he died. So he said that he didn't commit suicide because he wanted to ultimately still be with his family, which is very contradicting to what he actually did. So as far as the family home in New Jersey now where the murders occurred, it was burnt down and rebuilt several months after the murders occurred. But what is really weird about that house is that authorities were never really able to find the cause of the fire that ended up burning it down. But nevertheless, a new house was built on the property a couple years later. I watched this video of the house because if you look online, you can find the exact address. And I did a Google search of it and looked at the house. And you would never think that that's the house that a murder occurred in. Um, But at the same time, it does kind of give off a weird feeling just knowing what I know and now what you know about this case. It was definitely interesting to see the house. Um, They've knocked obviously the whole thing down and rebuilt it from the ground up. But 
I watched something that the neighbors were saying on it and they said that sometimes kids won't even walk down that street because they don't want to see the house or some people won't live on that street because they don't want to be connected to that house. It's definitely has left a very big imprint on the community. Um, but yeah, it's crazy. I don't think that I would want to live in that house either, honestly. But yeah, you guys, that is all I have for you today for the first episode of Hollow Week. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you guys are as excited as I am about Hollow Week and getting this whole thing started and kicked off. This case is absolutely crazy, but they are just going to keep on getting crazier and crazier as we keep going through the rest of the week. So definitely make sure you are following a Killer Instinct. Just take a second right now. I will wait here while you check if you are following us or not. Trust me, guys, you really don't want to miss out on some of these cases I have because they are crazy. All right, you guys, that is all for me today. I will see you tomorrow. That's so weird to say. I will see you tomorrow for a brand new Halloween episode, Halloween episode two. So thanks so much for listening, you guys. Stay safe until I talk to you tomorrow, and I can't wait to see you there. <laughs>